Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Heritage Events Live. We're delighted to have you with us for our annual B.C. Lee Lecture featuring the Honorable Mike Pence. Please welcome to the stage, the president of the Heritage Foundation, Kay Coles Jang. Thank you so very much, and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Um, ladies and gentlemen, all gathered here, distinguished guests, um, the BC Lee Lecture is something that is very, very special to the Heritage family. This is our signature event on US foreign policy in the Indo-Pacific. I want to recognize and also express my appreciation for the presence of representatives of the diplomatic corps, including, what a distinguished group you are, the ambassadors of Albania, Brunei, Georgia, Portugal, Singapore, the Philippines, and Ukraine. The deputy chiefs of mission from the embassies of Hungary, Kosovo, Lithuania, the Philippines, and Taiwan. And the deputy head of delegation of the European Union. Thank you all so very much for coming. It's in a very real way, your presence here captures the spirit of this lecture. I also want to recognize Dr. Kyron Skinner, whom our dignitaries may have worked with when she was the Director of Policy Planning and Senior Advisor to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo in the previous administration. Kyron is now a visiting fellow at Heritage's Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy. And I also want to recognize former Secretary of Veteran Affairs and a Heritage Visiting Fellow, Robert Wilkie. Thank you all. As a point of personal privilege, I also want to recognize two very distinguished guests, uh, my husband, Charles James, and the future of the conservative movement, my grandson, Brandon Level. <laughs> the man for whom these lectures are named was not an American. He was Korean and he was the founder of the Samsung Corporation. Some 25 years ago, Samsung endowed these lectures in his name. They wanted to focus the attention of American policymakers on our shared US-Korean interest in the Asia Pacific. On behalf of all of us at Heritage, we continue to be deeply honored that we are entrusted with this part of his legacy. Today, we have the privilege of welcoming a good friend, and I'm proud to stay, say a distinguished fellow at Heritage, former Vice President Mike Pence. He'll be delivering our BC Lee Lecture today. In his capacity as a distinguished fellow, the Vice President advises Heritage experts on public policy issues and ensures that Heritage remains the leading conservative voice on solution to America's biggest challenges. 
Vice President Pence follows in a long line of leading figures in American foreign policy to speak at this lecture, including uh, Secret former Secretary Henry Kissinger, Condoleezza Rice, and the late Donald Rumsfeld. At our inaugural lecture back in 1995, Secretary Kissinger said that America didn't have a clear-cut strategic adversary. That was the consensus back then, but my goodness, how times have changed. Today, thanks in large part to the leadership of the Trump-Pence administration, there's no debate. China has clearly emerged as America's greatest foreign policy challenge of the 21st century. Vice President Pence was an integral part of the administration's successful effort to make China a clear policy priority. That's a key reason we invited him to speak with us today. He's here today to lay out the critical implications for the U.S.-China policy in the years ahead. Mr. Vice President, we're delighted to have you with us. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce to you the 48th Vice President of the United States and Heritage Foundation Distinguished Visiting Fellow, Mike Pence. Thank you so very much uh, for that warm welcome back to Washington, D.C. Took the short trip from Indiana, and it's good to be among so many gathered here today. I'm especially uh, delighted uh, to be back at the Heritage Foundation, to have the distinct honor, not only to be a distinguished visiting fellow, but to deliver the annual B.C. Lee Lecture among so many distinguished leaders from across this country and representatives of allies of the United States. I'm grateful for the invitation, and I'm proud with each and every one of you to stand today here at the Heritage Foundation in defense of the ideals that make up our priceless heritage of freedom. No better venue than the Heritage Foundation. Before I begin, let me speak to an issue on the minds of freedom-loving people around the world. As we gather today, the people of Cuba are taking to the streets once again for the ideals of freedom. For more than 60 years, the people of Cuba have labored under a communist dictatorship that has stifled their liberty, silenced voices of dissent, squandered their future. And while some on the far left are hesitant to criticize their communist friends, in Cuba, let me say clearly, the American people stand with the courageous men and women of Cuba that are marching to reclaim their history of libertad. And the United States must always stand for a free and democratic Cuba. It must always be Que viva Cuba Libre. So thank you for that. 
And I also just want to say thank you again to our host today, the extraordinary team here at Heritage Foundation. has had an impact in my life and my career, and it's my great honor to be associated with this institution today. Would you join me in thanking uh, someone who I think personifies everything that's best about the conservative movement and has done an extraordinary job leading this institution, President K. Cole James. Thank you so much. I also want to thank Vice President Jim Carafano and uh, also the founder of the Heritage Foundation, Ed Fulner, two men that have had a great impact on my thinking as well. Also, I wanted to acknowledge three people that I'm awfully glad to see again, three distinguished members of uh, President Trump's cabinet who are with us today, served the United States with extraordinary distinction. They include former U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer, former Secretary of Veterans Affairs Robert Wilkie, and the former director of the Centers for Disease Control, Robert Redfield. Would you join me in thanking these extraordinary American leaders? Good to be with you. As vice president, I had the honor of giving what many considered to be two significant foreign policy speeches about China first at the Hudson Institute in 2018, and then at the Wilson Center in 2019. In those speeches, I sought to outline the numerous policies of the Chinese Communist Party that harmed America's interests, from China's debt diplomacy and military expansionism to its repression of people of faith, its omnipresent surveillance state, and of course, to the undeclared trade war China had been waging on the United States for decades. I noted that America's leaders, both Republican and Democrat, had failed to address these abuses under the mistaken belief that China's newfound prosperity would inevitably lead to liberty. And I explained that all that changed when President Donald Trump arrived in the White House. I articulated first in 2018 the reasons why the Trump-Pence administration was taking a different course with China. It was guided not by wishful thinking, but by a clear-eyed assessment that China was a strategic and economic rival playing to win by any means necessary. Now, over those four years, President Trump and I changed the national consensus on China. For the first time under our administration, we met China's military provocations in the Western Pacific with the largest increase in military spending since the days of Ronald Reagan. We stood up to years of trade abuses and imposed historic tariffs on Chinese imports to bring China to the negotiating table. We spoke out forcefully against China's human rights abuses, and we called the tragedy unfolding in Xinjiang what it is, genocide. Today, the debate is settled. After the leadership of our administration, millions of Americans acknowledge we were right. Americans of every political persuasion now recognize that the Chinese regime harbors adversarial intentions toward the United States and our allies. In the wake of a devastating worldwide pandemic, compounded by Beijing's lack of transparency, 
we know Chinese leaders cannot be trusted. And millions of Americans today are awake to the fact that the Chinese Communist Party aspires not merely to join the community of economically developed nations, but to sit atop a new global order created in its own image, a world in which freedom is constrained, but Beijing's power is not. Yet despite this new national consensus, the Biden-Harris administration is already rolling over to communist China. They rejoined the Paris Climate Accord, allowing China to pollute with impunity. They rejoined a Chinese-controlled World Health Organization without demanding a single concession in the wake of failures throughout the pandemic. And they terminated our administration's inquiry into the origins of the coronavirus pandemic before later reversing course. Now, President Biden has maintained a few of our administration's tough policies on China. For example, the tariffs he campaigned against in 2020 so far remain in place. But it's important to remember that our policies, which secured the groundbreaking phase one trade deal in January of 2020, were only intended to be first steps. America cannot afford to stand still in writing our relationship with China. And it is incumbent on the Biden administration to keep up the pressure, pick up the pace, and lead America forward. Because China is pursuing its global ambitions more aggressively than ever before. While Americans were celebrating the 4th of July just a few short days ago, President Xi Jinping gave a speech commemorating the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Chinese Communist Party. In that speech, he warned the world that anyone standing in China's way, and I quote, will find their heads bashed bloody against a great wall of steel forged by over 1.4 billion Chinese people. There's an old saying that weakness arouses evil. And my sense is that China senses weakness in this new administration. This was reflected in the brazenly aggressive tone Beijing displayed at their first face-to-face -face meeting between senior Biden administration officials and Chinese diplomats, where Americans were literally, in that Alaska meeting, lectured on the shortcomings of our democracy, the foolishness of American values, and the so-called superiority of China's authoritarian system. The American people recognize today what our administration brought to the fore. The Chinese Communist Party is the greatest threat to our prosperity, security, and values on the face of the earth. China may not yet be an evil empire, but it's working hard every day to become one. But it's important to remember China is not 10 feet tall. Her weaknesses are greater than her strengths. And China's a lonely power. Of the 14 nations that share a border with China, 
The only one it can claim as an ally is North Korea. History proves that a united America, proud of its past, committed to its principles, is a power no force on earth can stop. So in the wake of the historic progress that we made under our administration, I believe there are a number of urgent steps the Biden administration must take for America to continue to effectively respond to China's economic and military ambitions and to protect America's vital interests. First, the United States must demand that China come clean about the origins of the coronavirus. The evidence strongly suggests the coronavirus leaked out of a Chinese lab. And after four million deaths around the world and a year of unspeakable hardship, the American people and the world deserve to know exactly what the Chinese Communist Party knew, when they knew it, and the specific actions they took based on that knowledge. More than anything else, the pandemic has revealed the recklessness, incompetence, and corruption of the Chinese regime. At the beginning of the pandemic, it is unconscionable that China suspended travel within its own borders, but did not suspend travel with the outside world. Well, I submit to you that President Trump's decision to suspend all travel from China in January of 2020, saved countless American lives and bought us invaluable time to stand up the greatest national mobilization since World War II. That's what leadership looks like. Now, the Chinese Communist Party believes the purpose of science is to advance the party's objectives. And the truth is, every technological advancement achieved under the all-seeing eye of the Chinese Communist Party could be weaponized. When America funds scientific research in China, we become complicit in every abuse committed using the technology that's developed. Under no circumstance should the United States allow public or private funding of scientific laboratories in communist China, especially those involved in gain-of-function research today. Second, we need to ensure that America is fully prepared for the future pandemic that may strike the world. A pandemic unrelated to COVID-19, which if history is a guide, could likely emerge from China as well. I remember calling a prime minister of another country shortly after I was tapped by the president to lead the White House Coronavirus Task Force. I called him to request that he ship generic drugs of a certain type to the United States because all production of that medicine had moved overseas. 
In the wake of that, our administration ordered federal agencies to purchase certain prescription drugs exclusively from American factories to bring vital medical supply chains back to the United States. And President Biden should build on these efforts and ensure that all essential pharmaceuticals, medical devices, and protective gear are made right here in the USA. The lives and health and well-being of the American people should never be left. Never be left to the whims of a communist dictatorship. Third, the president should accelerate efforts to decouple the American economy from China in industries that are essential to the American people and our national security. For example, Chinese investors now own nearly 200,000 acres of prime American farmland. America cannot allow China to control our food supply. And the President and the Congress should end all farm subsidies for land owned by foreign nationals. <laughs> Likewise. We should prohibit Chinese investment in critical U.S. infrastructure projects like pipelines and power plants. And I call on the Biden administration to increase the number of Chinese companies prohibited from American investment by at least an order of magnitude. The Security and Exchange Commission must also rediscover its mission to protect American investors something it failed to do before this month's fiasco involving Didi's stock offering. Didi is just the latest opaque Chinese company operating under Beijing's capricious regulations to take billions of dollars from ill-informed U.S. investors. The SEC must obey the law enacted by our administration and delist Chinese companies that flout the rules of accounting and transparency that American public companies must follow. Even as we decouple from communist China, we should also take this opportunity in history to strengthen the ties of economic commerce between the United States and Taiwan. Now is the perfect time to negotiate a trade agreement with Taiwan that will benefit both partners, while also helping Taiwan remain strong and secure. Engaging with Taiwan encourages other free nations to do likewise, and it promotes stability and peace throughout the region. America must also continue to stand with the freedom-loving people of Hong Kong. For decades, Beijing promised that Hong Kong would remain a free city under the one country, two systems framework. But as my friend Jimmy Lai has learned, who now languishes in a prison for simply exercising his freedom of speech and supporting peaceful protesters, times have changed. And the free world must hold accountable Chinese officials that break their word to the world and fail to honor their commitments to the people 
in Hong Kong. Fourth, America must significantly increase the readiness of our Navy in order to ensure freedom of navigation in the Indo-Pacific. Just this week, China boasted that it drove away a U.S. Navy ship conducting freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea. While President Biden is cutting defense spending in his proposed budget, the Chinese military budget increased by 7% this year, and it's increased by almost 600% over the last two decades. China also recently launched its own space station and is rapidly developing new space technology. Maintaining American military support superiority requires new investments in American shipyards, and it also requires that we effectively organize and deploy the United States Space Force. At the same time, the President must make it clear that the Western Hemisphere is off limits to China's neocolonialism. As China continues to spend billions of dollars building infrastructure in Latin America, President Biden should state unambiguously that the United States remains committed to the Monroe Doctrine. This week, Beijing's glowing endorsement of the communist regime in Cuba while brave Cubans are taking to the streets demanding freedom is a grim reminder of China's ongoing effort to gain a foothold in the Americas. And to be clear, China must never be allowed to build a military base in Latin America or anywhere in the Western Hemisphere. And not unrelatedly, there was a report released this week by House and Senate Republicans that showed that our military is spending more time on wokeness than on war fighting. With the challenges we face at this critical time, the military brass at the Pentagon needs to stop wasting time on politically correct nonsense like critical race theory, and they need to start focusing on making sure our military remains the best trained and best prepared fighting force in the world. Fifth, to protect American intellectual property and national security, President Biden should immediately prohibit the issuance of H-1B visas to Chinese nationals employed at U.S. technology companies. This is not because we don't trust Chinese visa holders. It's because we don't trust China's communist government. We know that China often coerces its own citizens to participate in industrial espionage and forces them to hand over trade secrets against their will. And to further protect our homeland, our elected leaders in Washington should ban the Confucius Institute, a program funded by the Communist Party in China to facilitate the theft of American research and spread Chinese propaganda on American college campuses. Our leaders and our colleges and universities 
should say, the day is over for the Confucius Institute on campuses in America. And finally, President Biden should make a clear and unequivocal demand that the 2022 Winter Olympics be moved from Beijing unless China comes clean on the origins of COVID-19 and immediately ends persecution of the Uyghur people. The Olympics should only take place in countries that respect fundamental human rights and the well-being of mankind. Now, these are the steps that I believe the new administration must take to confront the unique challenges we face with the Chinese Communist Party. And it's important to reflect that in many respects, Communist China poses a greater challenge to the United States than the Soviet Union ever did throughout the Cold War. Today, America is forced to confront China on two fronts. One, against an authoritarian system and military bent on regional domination. And the other, against powerful business interests and celebrities in our own country who openly aid and abet the communist regime. To put a fine point on it, imagine if during the Cold War, the USSR also happened to be America's top trading partner. Imagine if the United States was dependent on Moscow for life-saving medical equipment or the rare earth minerals essential to modern technology. Imagine your favorite household brands indirectly funding Soviet occupation of Eastern Europe, building the Berlin Wall, or financing the construction of gulags in Siberia. And for those of us old enough to remember the Cold War, it's beyond imagination. And yet this is precisely the situation we face today in what may well be an emerging Cold War with China. Beijing has exploited modern corporate America's insatiable appetite for market access and coerced top CEOs, athletes, and entertainers into not only withholding criticism from the communist regime, but in many cases, actively singing their praises. American business leaders preach such social justice at home while they profit from slavery abroad. They boast of their commitment to the environment while their facilities in China blacken the skies and choke our oceans with plastic. They criticize America's founding fathers while lauding a regime that murdered millions of its own citizens during the great leap forward and perpetrated the massacre at Tiananmen Square. I think millions of Americans are asking a very simple question of leaders in businesses. Are you an American company or a Chinese company? Are you for democracy or for totalitarianism? Millions of Americans are looking at corporate America today and saying, 
Are you on our side or theirs? Henry Kissinger said recently that we are in the foothills of a new Cold War. So now is the time for leaders in America, in the public and private sector, to make a choice. The CEO of Nike appears to have made his choice. He recently announced, and I quote, Nike is a brand that is of China and for China. That uh, probably explains why just a few years ago they, they canceled production of a shoe with an American flag on it. I hope Nike understands the American people are watching. The truth is, the China problem was made and manufactured right here in the USA. And China's rise continues to be enabled by American businesses, and some in public life. It continues to be powered by American technology, all at the expense of the American people. But the good news is that a problem made in America can be fixed in America. All we have to do is stay the course, set by our administration, and stand firm. As consumers, we can stop buying Chinese imports and start looking for products made with American hands and American pride. As employers, we can stop sending jobs and factories to China and start building in our own communities. As investors, we can stop investing the pension of American citizens in companies that develop weapons of war for the Chinese military and instruments of control over the Chinese people. And our elected leaders must build on the progress of the Trump-Pence administration and use the economic and military power of the United States of America to check the ambitions of the Chinese Communist Party in the interest of the American people and American values. But only a proud and confident and united America can meet that challenge. You know, when societies lose faith in their values, they soon lose faith in themselves. And today, America's involved in a great debate at home about who we are and from whence we come. Chinese people, by contrast, in the face of the power and the party that rules over them, the people themselves seem to realize what some in the West have forgotten, that a civilization is only as strong as its faith is vibrant. In 1958, Chairman Mao proudly declared that communist China was, quote, religion-free. But today, despite the harsh efforts of the Chinese Communist Party. There are more Chinese Christians in church on Sunday in China than there are members of the Communist Party in China. I want to be very clear that we, when we speak as we did in 2018 and 2019 in our administration, took the steps that we took. 
It was in opposition to the efforts and the ambitions of the Chinese Communist Party, not the Chinese people. As an ancient civilization, we believe that China and the Chinese people are deserving of respect with so much to admire, even though their current government has very different values than ours. China must understand that America's decisions can never be separated from our most cherished belief that each of us are endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights, and that among these are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. America does not seek to impose our values on others, but uh, we will never apologize or abandon our values in the name of commerce. And we should never hesitate, as President Trump showed us, to make access to the world's largest economy contingent on respect for the basic principles of fair play and the rule of law. And so, as I close my prior remarks on U.S.-China relations, so I close today. America's new administration must stay the course, stay on the path that we forge, a new path for the American people, built on realism and a recognition of the challenge that China faces and poses to our country. We must stand resolute in defense of our interests and our values, even as we reach out a hand to China in the hope that Beijing will reach back with deeds, not words, with renewed respect for America. There's an ancient Chinese proverb that reads, men see only the present, but heaven sees the future. As we go forward, let's pursue a future of peace and prosperity with resolve and faith. Faith in our ideals and America's place in the world as a beacon of hope for all mankind. Faith in the enduring friendship and ties between our people and the Chinese people and faith that heaven sees the future, and that by God's grace, it will be a future in which America and China move beyond our present differences and forge a new relationship grounded in fairness and respect with a rising tide that will lift both nations where we can proudly stand together as partners and friends. That's our hope. That must be our resolve. And let it be our prayer. So thank you. And God bless you. And God bless America.
Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being here today and welcoming the Vice President. I'm going to ask you to stay seated while he exits the room. Thank you so much.